We could preach two or three more sermons trying to make up theories, really, about what some of the actions of Mary and Joseph mean. But there are some very clear lessons in the gospel here, and I'd like to take three of them. And they all begin with the letter W. The 12-year-old Jesus teaches us in this gospel lesson today that we have to make an effort when we worship our Lord. Secondly, we have to make an effort in order to acquire the wisdom that God wants us to have in our lives. And finally, we have to exert an effort in order to proclaim the witness to our Lord and Savior that he expects us to make. Worship, wisdom, and witness makes it easier to understand. Let's read again the first part of the Gospel. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom, or as it says in some translations, according to their custom. This story of the 12-year-old Jesus is the only account of the life of Christ from the time of his birth until he was 30 years old. How we wish there were other stories that we could read to see what kind of a young person he was, what did he look like, what did he do, what was his recreation. But this story is here, obviously, because God wants us to get some truths out of it. There are indeed other stories. They're called apocryphal stories, called the infancy of Jesus, that you'll find in some Bibles. And in one of these books of the infancy of Jesus, it says when Jesus would play with his companions, they would make birds and animals out of mud. But then the ones that Jesus made were unusual because they started flying away, showing everyone around that he is indeed a different kind of person. Now we know that's obviously false because later when Jesus was at the wedding of Cana, it says this was the first time he did a miracle. So those may be cute stories, but they're not for our instruction. Let's look instead at what it says in this first verse. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for Passover. The reason they did that is rooted in the law of Moses. The Old Testament says that every male Jew was required to go to Jerusalem three times a year for three different festivals, one of them the Passover. Well, when the Jews were carried into captivity in Babylon, this was obviously impossible, and they had to conduct their worship in a foreign land as best they could. But when they came back to Palestine, the Jews decided that they should at least carry out part of this command, and so every male Jew tried to get up to Jerusalem once a year for the Passover. It says up to Jerusalem, even though it was to the, north, to the south, because Jerusalem, both physically and spiritually, was a high place. It was built on hills, 
and it was spiritually the holy city. So Joseph decided to do the same thing, not just this one time when Jesus was 12, but it says, as was their custom to do. And even more so, even more impressive, was the fact that Mary went because women were not required to go up to Jerusalem to worship during these festivals. But they set an example for their young son. They walked 70 miles to church. They took him. They didn't send him while watching TV. They took him, and not only took him for a one-hour church service, they stayed for seven days. Now, many of the other people stayed two days, we read, and then went back just to say they have been there to put in their appearance. But a seven, seven full days. Now, <clears throat> obviously, the habit of going to Jerusalem for worship was part of the upbringing of Jesus, which later in his ministry became such an important part of his life. The going to Jerusalem, the worshiping in the synagogue was a part of Jesus' life, which he as a human being is trying to instruct us to emulate. Salvation is free. The beginning and end of our salvation are free, but the part in between takes an effort. Luther used to say, ein Christ ist immer in Werden. That means in English, a Christian is always becoming a Christian. God makes us a Christian, but that means we've got to work at it. It's more work being a Christian than not being one, because you have to respond to God's love with the things that the Word of God tells us he expects us to do. And worship is one of them. It's not entertainment. Electronic worship is based on entertainment. We flip from channel to channel to see which one intrigues us. It is not as though God is up in front of the church trying to figure out what will amuse us so we'll come back next Sunday. Worship is what we do. God has done his thing. Now we do ours while God watches. And Jesus taught us to make an effort. And what an effort he made. God himself made an effort to go to church. And secondly, it says in the middle of today's gospel that he stayed for three days after the church service was over. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. As a teacher, I find this mind-boggling. I've never had a student stay after class for three hours. Here is a student staying for three days. I couldn't even answer questions for three days, not even on Halley's Comet. What were they talking about? Well, if only I had a tape recorder there. What were they talking about? The Giants game, I doubt it. At 12 years old, Jesus, if you know the law of Moses, had arrived at another important part of his life. At age 12, a Jewish boy becomes of age when it comes to learning the Bible. 
At age 12, he is responsible for learning the law of Moses. And when we see Jesus in the wilderness later answering the devil, we begin to see the payoff. He didn't have a Bible with him. He memorized it. He knew how to answer the devil from scriptures, which was the only thing that counted to the evil one. I remember in the eighth grade, there was a huge picture on the wall of Jesus in the temple. And as I think back, I find that there was something not quite right about that painting, even though it became ingrained in my mind, aside from the fact that all these pictures in our church history and Bibles and on the walls showed nice German little pictures of Jesus and German shepherds and German wise men and even German-looking teachers in the temple. It took me a while later to find out that that was not really the case. But what it also showed that I find incorrect is that Jesus had his hands out and all these people were sitting around and he was teaching them. It doesn't say a word here that Jesus was teaching the people. It says he was sitting and listening and asking questions. Jesus was learning. Now Jesus didn't have to learn a thing. Obviously it's in here to show us that that's what he wants us to do. Jesus at 12 years there was not acting like some smart aleck telling the teachers, now let me tell you what the facts are. He was learning from the teachers when his parents walked in. What a PTA meeting. That is, to my knowledge, the only description of a Christian education PTA meeting in the whole Bible. Mary and Joseph learned at that instant that it was important, more important than anything else, for children to learn the Word of God. Now, <clears throat> the asking of questions and the responses that Jesus gave, it says that the teachers were amazed at his responses. I don't think because he had some revelation from on high that he shared with them. I think he amazed them because his parents had told him so many things before age 12 that he was different from all the other boys and they were amazed at his Christian home. But the asking of questions and the answering of questions is the supreme way of teaching. Jesus has always been called, even by his detractors, the master teacher. Rabbi means teacher. And even those who hated him did not detract from his ability to teach. In fact, many of them hated him because he was able to teach people so effectively and they didn't like what he was teaching them. And how did he teach? In our family Bible classes, we have come to understand recently in studying the book of the Gospel of St. John, where the teaching of Jesus is very clearly delineated, that Jesus never answered people's questions rhetorically, directly. When people asked Jesus questions, he almost always asked them a question back. Now why did he do that? Isn't that frustrating? When a person comes up and asks you a question, and then instead of answering it directly, you say, well, let me ask you one. 
that method of teaching, which takes a lot of time and energy and wisdom, is effective because a person who has to answer a question comes to a conclusion on his own. Whereas a person who only hears what I say can merely repeat what I know. This is called the Socratic method. The Greek philosopher Socrates, before the time of Christ, was the one who did this so effectively that finally there was no answer to Socrates' question of why he should not be put out of the way. And so he was put to death because people couldn't answer his questions. Jesus always asked the question back when they tried to trick him. They brought him a coin or they asked him, Master, is it legal or do you think it is possible or should we pay taxes? It was a catch-22. If he said yes, he was a Roman. If he said no, he was a rebel. And he answered with a question. And he said, bring me a coin. You answer the question. They brought him a woman taken at adultery and they said, let's stone her. What do you think, Jesus? And he answered them with a question. He said, who is among you without sin? And when a person reaches his own conclusions, then the truth is yours. Jesus, I feel, in this age 12 story, was showing us how to learn and how to teach. He was furthermore showing us that true wisdom is rooted in the word of God. They were amazed at his answers. They were in the temple. They were talking about God's word. And as it says in James 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, what does it say to do? Go to school, ask your parents, ask somebody who's an authority. It says he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. How true that is of many people who answer your questions. They find fault with what you think. And it says, it will be given to him. That doesn't mean we shouldn't pick up the information that is available to us from parents, from books, from school, from teachers. But all this information we gather is not called in the Bible wisdom. The Bible always distinguishes between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is information. You and I know a lot of people with lots of knowledge. But how many have wisdom? Wisdom means the integration of knowledge into a way of life, of how to change actions, and particularly when used in the Bible, how to acquire the way of life rooted in the life of our Lord and Savior. That's true wisdom. And the person who doesn't have that wisdom will get nowhere with his or her knowledge. With all you're getting, Proverbs says, of knowledge, get wisdom. And that we only get by asking God. So the Lord Jesus at age 12 says you have to work at acquiring wisdom. You can't just leave it to chance. You have to root yourself in the word of God. And then finally, when you have done that, when you have worshipped God with your body and mind, 
when you have dug into his wisdom, then you are equipped finally to do what Jesus did in the last verse of the gospel. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Imagine God himself growing in wisdom and in stature. You know, the thought came to me, and it's certainly not original with me, that God, for thousands of years, had been trying to talk some sense into the people on earth. And over and over again, they didn't get it. They strayed. They didn't do what he wanted them to do. They didn't understand, and if they understood, they didn't do it. And finally, God decided it's time, instead of talking, to show them what I'm talking about. And so at Christmas, he decided to show humankind what true wisdom is in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Because by becoming human, Jesus could then show what a human life should be like. And in that sense, it means that he was growing in wisdom to show that this is what we should do, whether we're 8, 12, or 80. And the last part, I think, of this witness that we're to work at is very, very important and difficult to do. He was growing in favor with God and man. How do you grow in favor with God? What can we do to please him? Obviously, to acquire the wisdom of his salvation. Because of our own, we cannot do anything for his favor. And how do you grow in favor with people? By being a person who is so outstanding in the peace that we have, in the wisdom that we have, that people see it and say, I want to be like that. We're not supposed to be obnoxious, even in our witness. We're not supposed to be preaching the gospel at a person in a way that will turn that person off. We're supposed to grow in stature with people so that they say, wow, what do you have that I don't have, I'd like to get it too. And we have to be ready to do that at the drop of a hat. I was reminded of that last week when we went into the city to look at the window displays. It was cold, I'm still getting over the cold, but I'm kind of happy that I devoted that cold to one particular cause, and that was that while we were looking into a window at Altman's, in the freezing cold, out of the clear blue sky, a man next to me starts talking about his faith. And he says, you mean you believe that stuff? I said, what stuff? Well, the story of Santa Claus. How could he get down the chimney? He was obviously, and he was not uh, out of his mind. He was serious. He was searching for something. He wanted me to say something that would make him think at Christmas time. 
What do you say? Well, the first thing you do is pray, Lord, give me some words. I may never see this person again. And I said, well, of course, the true meaning of Christmas is the birth of Christ. Read the Bible. That's what the true meaning of Christmas is. Oh, no, the Bible, he said, that's just one of many myths. You want me to read the Koran, too? You want me to read Lao Tse-Tung's stories and all the others, too? We have to respect all those? He said, I find that many people don't know what they're talking about. And on and on, while I'm freezing, I couldn't get rid of him. He wanted me to say something that would make him read the Bible. I hope I did. I don't know where he is today. But it was a time for witness, brief. But you have to be ready. Obviously, something about me looking at that window made him start asking questions. And I thought of Jesus teaching. I've got to ask him questions. What do you believe? What is the purpose of your life? What are you doing with it? That is true witness. Well, how do we get that way? For a long time afterward, I thought, if only I'd said this, if only I'd said that. Well, we've got to stay tuned. They're always telling us it's at the end of another segment of a soap opera, stay tuned. We've got to stay tuned to the Word of God and to the will of God. We've got to stay rooted in His Word. We have to keep the communications open through prayer. We have to work at worshiping eagerly, not another Sunday. Jesus did all these things. You say he was God. Well, he did it for our education. We have to pray that we can, as good as possible, do it like he did. He walked 70 miles to boot, not through arguing. You never argue a person into faith. You don't even argue yourself into faith. God gives it to us as a free gift. We don't overpower people with our logic and say, don't you see that you have to be a Christian? No. We open the Bible to them. We open our lives to them. We give God a chance. And then we are ready. I remember that Pastor Zimmerman, who was on the hijacked TWA airliner in Beirut when he spoke at Concordia College recently, told us that when he was a pastor in the West of a little congregation, a little Lutheran church, he wondered if there isn't something more exciting than this that God could do in his life. And he said he prayed one day and said, God, use me in some way. And wow, bang, all of a sudden, he was known throughout the world for reading the Bible in the cockpit of an airplane. He said, when you ask God to use you, you better have your bags packed. You better be ready, because he'll never be the same again. Now he's speaking all over the world about his experience and about his faith in Christ, which he couldn't have done if he hadn't prayed and said, God, use me. And I asked him, when those hijackers were waving their guns around in the cockpit and you were reading the Bible, weren't you a little nervous that they would find that offensive since they were Muslims? And he said, not at all. The reading of the Bible impressed them deeply that somebody would take their faith so seriously that at a time of crisis, 
they would read the word of God in spite of others around them who were hostile to them. That was his witness. President Lincoln was asked one time, doesn't he find, and by the way, President Lincoln read the Bible diligently. I have a book of his devotions that he used. And they said, President Lincoln, don't you find many parts of the Bible difficult to understand? And he replied, it's not the parts that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do understand. Those are the ones that give me trouble. And I think so it is here. When Jesus tells us that he wants us to make an effort at worship, at acquiring his wisdom, and being ready to witness, for that we need the power and strength and wisdom of God. And may the wisdom of God and the peace that accompanies it, which surpass all human understanding, keep our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen.